many of you know that we've been going through First Peter on Wednesday night, but this is our last, our last service before Christmas. So we're going a bit of a different direction, but we're going to tie it together with what we've been studying in First Peter. So don't worry, we're not going way off the rails here. Um, although, come on, it's in the Bible. It's probably not way off the rails. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing to be worried about there. But uh, we're going to go back a little bit to something we read earlier in First Peter about Christ the cornerstone. We know that Christ is a rock. He's a cornerstone, and he's also a stone of offense and a stone of stumbling. All right? So the Scripture tells us he can be both of those things depending on who you are. Depending on your attitude towards Jesus, he's either a, the cornerstone of your life or he's a major stumbling block that's going to trip you up and cause you, cause you some trouble. Now, I, I know this is a little bit weird that we would ever say Jesus would cause anybody trouble is a strange thing to say. Because you know what? Jesus is the Savior of the world. He's the Christ. He's, he's King of kings, Lord of lords. Why in the world would that ever be a trouble or a bad thing to anybody? We know that when the angels came to the shepherds, they said, this is good news of great joy for all the people. This is not bad news that Jesus is born. It's not bad news that Messiah has come. In fact, this is the best news the world has ever seen. But you know what? The truth is, for some, it was bad news. For some, it was a problem. And you saw that throughout Jesus' ministry. He raised the lowly up. He, he raised those that were trapped in a pit and took them out and raised them up and healed them and delivered them. But there were those that he confronted head on and they eventually got to the point where they had to kill him. Of course, we know that they didn't take his life. He laid it down freely. And yet, he obviously ruffled some feathers. I want you to go back to what Simeon, the old man, said to, to Mary and Joseph as they brought Jesus, a baby Jesus, not, not, not long after his birth. The days of his purification had passed, and there was a time for his, his, his name to be called, his, his official dedication to the Lord. So they brought him to the temple in Jerusalem. There was an Old Testament law that, that God had said to his people, the firstborn that you ever have, you dedicate that firstborn to the Lord. So they brought Jesus to the temple to do exactly what the scripture said. And the scripture also told them, when you dedicate your child to the Lord, bring an offering with you. Now, if you were really rich, you'd bring a goat. If you're really rich, you'd bring a cow. If you're really rich, you'd bring something substantial. But the law of Moses stated that if you didn't have much money and you couldn't afford a calf, you couldn't afford a, you know, something big, then you would bring two turtle doves. And those were, were much cheaper than, than, you know, livestock. You bring two turtle doves and God would accept that, that offering. And so you may never have known why on the 12 days of Christmas there's two turtle doves. That's why. Um, they're not just about romance and, and kissing birds. The two turtle doves were an offering that God accepted. Um, and they were the offering that Mary and Joseph brought to the temple. So I want you to turn to Luke 2. I know we read from Luke 2 on Sunday. We're going to skip straight to what Simeon says. He says, and of course, we, we read this prayer on Sunday, but we didn't read the whole thing. So we'll reread the first part, and then we're going to keep going. In, in verse 29, Luke 2, 29, he says, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace 
according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Jesus, his name, Yeshua, meant the Lord saves. The Lord is salvation. His, his, very, his very existence proved that God was going to save his people. That's what Jesus was all about. That was his, that was his name, that was his purpose, was to save. And everybody in this room can agree that that's a good purpose. I don't think anybody here says, no, I don't really like that. I don't, I, I don't think that's a good thing. I don't really want that. But a savior is necessary. Salvation is necessary when you know you need to be saved. See, the problem comes when you don't think you need to be saved. The problem comes when you, <laughs> you think you're doing fine and, and, and suddenly, suddenly somebody shows up and tells you that you're not as fine as you think you are and, and that you need a savior. That, that ruffles feathers, that, that overturns power structures. Here's what he says in verse 30. He goes on to say, For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you've prepared in the presence of all the people, a light of revelation of the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at all the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them. And so far, everything Simeon has said to mom and dad is really nice and really good. Let's face it, they need a good word right now. They've been through a lot. Mary, the teen mom, has gotten pregnant without being married and without ever having relations with her, her betrothed, her fiancé, Joseph. And we know that's because the Holy Spirit overshadowed her. She conceived of God and she was given a son. We know that that, that's, that was what we hold as the virgin birth. That, that's one of the cornerstones of our belief. But at the time, to her family members, to her relatives in her hometown, there's a lot of questions being raised. She's probably 14, 15 years old, maybe younger, maybe a little older. But she's... she's She's already having to deal with the judgment of people, the reproach of people. Elizabeth, her cousin, when, when she found out she was pregnant, said, Lord, you've removed the reproach of people. You've re removed the reproach of men that people put on me because now I'm able to have a baby. But for Mary, it was the opposite. By, by getting pregnant, everybody thought she was, you know, teen mom, that she was, she was in trouble. And Joseph himself almost divorced her, almost put her away until an angel appeared and said, no, you take this woman. This is a child of God. This is the son of God. And so they've had a bit of a hard time when she finally is ready to have a baby. You know the story. They show up and there's no room for them. They end up having to stay with the animals. Jesus is born in a stable. Jesus is born with animals and laid inside a feeding trough. So it's been a rough go. They finally get to the temple. An old man cuts in front of them, begins to kind of make wild gestures, seems really emphatic about something. You, you already kind of think he might be crazy, but then you realize he's not. He says, I've seen salvation. Mary and Joseph recognize this is a confirmation of what God has said to them through the angel and through the shepherds. And so he's all, all saying these good things. This is a light of revelation. He's salvation to Israel. All of these things are great. But then he goes into the next part of what God is telling him to say. And he says, Simeon blessed him and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. 
and a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Imagine someone telling you that the baby you held in your arms that you've known was God's salvation, that you knew was God's answer to hundreds and thousands of years of prophecy. But imagine being told that this baby is good news, is salvation, is redemption, is the son of God, but this baby is also going to be the fall of many, is going to be a sign to be opposed. That Jesus, from the beginning of his life, is being labeled as one who is, yes, going to cause many to rise, but also many to fall. That, that he's going to be salvation. He's going to be redemption for those that, that call on his name, that believe in him. But he's also going to be the one that, is, that, that many people are going to have a real big problem with. They're going to, they're going to oppose him. And, and Simeon says to Mary, even your own heart will be pierced. You're going to feel that a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end, that the thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. We all can agree Jesus coming is good news with great joy for all people. That's the gospel. The gospel itself, the word gospel in the New Testament means good news. It can't be taken any other way. And yet, as we read in 1 Peter quite a few weeks ago when we first started, we read that Jesus was the stone that the builders rejected. He was a, he's our cornerstone. He's, he's our foundation, but he's also a stumbling block to many. He's a, he's a sign, he's a, a rock of offense to many. I want to ask you just a question for you to think about for a minute here. Because I think everybody in the room, as far as I know, everybody in the room would say that Jesus has been your rise. That he's been your savior, he's been your redeemer, he's been your healer, he has been your deliverer. That Jesus has been to you everything you need. What's the difference? What makes the difference in whether Jesus is, is going to cause you to fall or cause you to rise? What makes the difference whether Jesus is going to be the savior that you're looking for or the one that you're opposing? Of course, we know the difference is, the first difference was you had to receive Jesus. You had to recognize that you needed the Savior. You had to, had to understand that, that you didn't have it all together on your own. But I, wanna, I, want, I want us to think about something further. I want us to think about the fact that we've received Jesus. And as John 1 said, to, as many as received him, he gave the right to be called the children of God. That's a great promise. We have received Jesus he has lifted you out of the mud. He has rescued you out of darkness. He has rescued you from death and brought you into life. And yet I would say there are moments, there are times in our life where we still find ourselves coming to a decision point, whether or not I'm going to follow what Jesus is saying, whether or not his words are going to be my rise or be my fall, whether or not I'm going to say, Lord, without you, I can do nothing. Through you, all things are possible. But I'm truly going to follow you and not just halfway do it, not just partway do it. But I've chosen to follow Jesus even when it's inconvenient, even when it goes directly against what I want. We know this, that God loves us. We know that God is good. 
We know that Jesus was the perfect image of God, that he showed us the Father. And you know what? Jesus didn't turn any sick away. He didn't turn any demon possessed away. He didn't turn anyone who came to him and said, said, Lord, I need you. He didn't turn them away. But there was one who came to him and said, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to enter the kingdom? And what Jesus had to say back to him was so hard for him to digest that he went away sad and rejected what Jesus said. We know that that's the rich young ruler, and Jesus didn't have a problem with what the rich young ruler had. As many people have said, Jesus had a problem that what the rich young ruler had, had him. His stuff was more important to him than following Jesus. His legacy, his importance, his position was more important. The New Testament explodes with John the Baptist's birth, Jesus' birth, and once we get past the nativity narrative, we get past the, the stories of baby Jesus, we, we come into this, in, in a couple of the Gospels, we come into this, this, this scene where we see John the Baptist ministering, preparing the way of the Lord. And John the Baptist has so many followers. He's, he's come out of the wilderness. He's a crazy looking guy. He smells weird. He's, he's lived in the wilderness most of his upbringing because, you know, his parents were old. And, and, and at some point, the scripture says, as a boy, he went out and grew up in the wilderness. I don't know if his parents died when he was young or what, but he grew up in the wilderness and it showed. He wore skinned animal hide for his clothing and he probably didn't skin it all too fashionable and probably still smell a little bit and he's eating locusts and honey and he comes out telling people I'm going to dunk you in some water and you'll be forgiven. I want you to know there's not a precedent for this in the Old Testament. Sure there's Naaman going under and coming up. Nobody dunked him. He just did it. But other than that there wasn't a precedent for somebody saying I'm going to take you, hold you under some water. When you come up your sins will be forgiven. John comes and says it, and, and you know what? God is with him, so people hear it, and people receive it. But there's this moment where he's got, remember, he was the one that God said, you're going to be the voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. He says, mountains will be leveled and valleys will be lifted up, and a crooked places will be made straight, a way will be prepared for the Lord. And John does exactly that. He takes the lowly places, the valleys, the people that thought they were unworthy of God, the people that thought they were too low to, to ever receive from God. He says, come here. I'm going to dunk you in some water and your sins will be forgiven you. You'll, you'll, be, you'll be washed clean again. And these people who thought they were unworthy suddenly found forgiveness. But then there's this moment, and I, and I love this story. All of a sudden, some, some of the, the religious leaders come because the crowds are there, so they should be seen at this meeting. And they show up. And John doesn't welcome them and say, I'd like to make a, a special announcement here. We have some honored guests in our presence. Some rulers of the synagogue, some, oh, we just want to give them a hand right now. Would you stand up right now? Would you take a bow? He doesn't do that. He says, who warned you? He points them out, and all of a sudden, they're looking at him like, you can't be talking to us. Who warned you? You pit of vipers. And he says, who warned you about the destruction to come? Who warned you about the judgment to come? And they're looking around like, you can't possibly be talking to us. And he says, if you've really repented, if you've really repented, bear fruits in accordance to repentance. What's he saying to them? He says, you guys are just here for show. You're here to be seen. Every, I know it. Maybe all these people didn't catch on, but I know it. 
So if you've really changed, something's going to show in your life. Jesus comes along, and, and you know what? He's not the same as John. Jesus told us that John's message was like, you know, John, John came and it was a message of repentance and it was a time to repent. Jesus came and it was a message of salvation. It was time to rejoice. So Jesus contrasts that there was a time for mourning and there's a time for dancing. And the time for rejoicing and feasting and dancing has come. Here's Jesus. But at the same time, he doesn't come just saying everything's roses and lollipops. There's still got to be some repentance. Not some repentance, a lot of repentance. And you begin to see what Simeon talked about as the Spirit of the Lord came on him and he began to prophesy. This child will be for the fall of many and the rise of many in Israel. Throughout history, because God is invisible, we can paint our image of him. We shouldn't, but we do. And we do it today, don't we? We tell you, I think this is what God's like. I've, I've heard people say, I'd like to believe there's no hell or there's no heaven. But what you like to believe has very little impact on the truth, doesn't it? If I say, I'd like to believe there's no such thing as bananas, bananas still exist. I'd like to believe that there's no such thing as, as winter in Canada, but winter still exists. Now, I like winter, but you know what I mean. What you like to believe, what you find comforting doesn't change what is and what isn't. Truth is truth. And so throughout history, people have shaped their idea of God based around what they were like or what they'd want him to be like. I mean, here's the good news. He's better than we ever thought. He's perfect. He's wonderful. And yet we still try to make him in our image. But when Jesus came, he comes and he says, if you've seen me, you've seen God. You've seen the Father. He comes and shows them what God looks like. And, and for many, it doesn't go with the image that they've created. And some of them are quick to say, I was wrong about God. I see it now I, and I accept it. But when you've made your whole business, when your whole livelihood is wrapped up in what you've told everybody God was like, and the Son of God himself comes... And he looks nothing like you've really described. He fits, he fits all the physical descriptors. He, he fits the birthplace. He fits the prophecy. And yet he's different. He's, his nature is different. And he doesn't think you're all as special as you've told everybody you are. Well, all of a sudden, this guy's a problem. And they're faced with a decision. You see, Jesus was called Emmanuel, God with us. And guys, I got to tell you the truth. That's one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard in my life is that God would come and be with us and dwell amongst us because our sin had separated us from God. Our sin had made that boundaries. Our sin had put walls between us and God. And Jesus came full of grace, thank God, and truth. And he took our sin in his body, he bridged the gap that God would take on our flesh and become one of us is a beautiful and amazing and a wonderful thing. But here's the problem. Once you see God face to face, you're faced with the, the knowledge that you've got to make a choice. Jesus brings up this point and the apostles brought it up many times after that you guys say you love the prophets. You say you're big fans. 
If you could have tattoos, you'd have Isaiah, Jeremiah, all those guys tattooed all over you. You love them. You got their posters up in your bedroom, Ezekiel. But the problem is, is that your forefathers were just like you, and they killed all those guys. (laughs) We love these guys hundreds of years later. They're our favorites. I mean, if the Pharisees could have baseball cards with, with the, the faces of these prophets, they'd have them. But they, they were the same sort of breed that killed these guys. You know, church history tells us that Isaiah, Isaiah, the great prophet Isaiah, one of the greatest, I mean, greatest prophets of the, of the Old Testament. Scripture tells, or sorry, not scripture, but church history tells us that Isaiah was sawn in half. We know Jeremiah was left in a pit to die. We know everybody just kind of left Ezekiel alone when he's lying on his side for hundreds of days eating bread cooked over dung. Nobody liked these guys when they were alive because it confronted them. They had to choose. They had to, they had to confront the fact that they didn't agree with God and now somebody with flesh and blood is telling me that. And when Jesus came, he brought God to people and he showed them, hey, this is what God is like. Are you sick? I'll heal you. Are you, are you oppressed? I'll set you free. Are you poor? Here's the gospel for you. You're ju- you're, you're ju- <laughs> the gospel is just as much for you as it is for that rich guy. We all are part of the family of God here. To all that believed in him, he gave the right to be called the children of God. That's good news. But he also made a lot of people really mad. We're going to read about that in Mark chapter 12. Go ahead and turn there in your Bible. To set up the timeline for you, um, Jesus has entered Jerusalem in the triumphant entry. He's invaded the temple, turned over the tables of the money changers, caused trouble, and, and just kind of set up shop in the temple. I don't know if you realize that, but for days, he just occupied the temple. I mean, when Jesus came into Jerusalem, he came in with a bang. He came in on a donkey that we might say was hijacked because he sent his disciples and said, just start untying it. If anybody asks you why you're untying it, say the Lord has need of it. It'll all be cool, guys. So they do. He gets on this animal. He rides through the streets of Jerusalem. And you might think, well, everybody was real happy to see him because they didn't they shout Hosanna? Didn't they raise palm branches and wave him around? Didn't they lay their coats on the ground? But if you read through all the gospels, you find out that it was the disciples that did that. It was the followers, and he had many followers at that point. It was the people that had saw the miracle at Bethany of Lazarus being raised from the dead. But the people of Jerusalem were pretty skeptical of this guy. They said, who's this? Some of the religious leaders said, would you shut your disciples up? They're loud. They're annoying. And they're saying things they shouldn't say. They're calling you the son of David. They're implying that you're the king, the Messiah. Then Jesus goes to the temple. He sees all these money changers around. Now, we might say, well, what did he have a problem with money changers? I mean, those guys were there to make offerings more convenient, you know. But the problem with the money changers is, is they just took advantage of people. They said, if you come to give your offering here, we're not taking your money from that place. You're not taking your money from, you have to get special money. And we'll take your money and we'll give you back special temple money. And it's a hefty exchange rate. How well is that? Oh, you guys didn't bring any offerings with you? That's too bad. God won't accept you. But don't worry, I've got pigeons and doves that 
that I'll sell you for a small fee. Now, you're at the stadium here, and everybody knows the concession stand at the stadium is way more expensive, right? Bottle of water is six bucks. So if you want to buy a dove for me, it's going to cost you. So Jesus walks in here, and he says, these are a bunch of thieves. And you might have pictured Jesus just blowing up, just, I can't handle the rage, and just flying off the handle, but that's not what happened. One of the Gospels tells us that he walks in, looks around, and walks away. He goes away, and the Bible says he goes off, and he makes himself a whip. This is premeditated, guys. <laughs> Can you imagine being one of his disciples? Jesus, what you doing? Making a whip. Why? <laughs> Remember, the disciples, as, as they said before they went to go see Lazarus at Bethany, they're freaked out to go to Jerusalem to start with. They think they're all going to die. So the last thing they want is Jesus ruffling even more feathers. He's a wanted man in Jerusalem, but he comes and he's making a whip. Can you imagine their dread as he begins to walk back to the temple with his whip, testing it, and they can see, uh-oh, he's doing something. He's not losing his temper. He's calm as a cucumber, cool as a cucumber. That's the phrase. And he walks into the temple. He begins to turn over tables, and, and I don't know what he does with the whip, but he does something with the whip. And, and he makes a ruckus, but the funny part is he doesn't leave. He doesn't run off and go, <laughs> got him, boys, prank. All right, you know, no, he goes back and he just sits in the temple. He occupies the temple. And so people start coming to him and asking questions and saying, so what's up, man? Religious leaders start challenging him. Remember, these guys aren't just learning about Jesus. They have already have a plan set in motion. They had a midnight meeting. They have a plan to kill him, and now he's set up shop in the temple. This is where Mark 12 takes place. And he begins to tell a parable. Now, if you'll remember, if you guys are students of the word, you'll know people tell you that parables were stories to make it easier to understand. But Jesus said, I tell parables so it's harder to understand. In fact, he said, so that the people who understand are the ones that have ears to hear. But these guys out there, they'll never understand what I'm saying. He told parables so that people that were hungry for God would understand what he said. They would get it. The Holy Spirit would reveal it to them. But to everybody else, they'd just be left puzzled by it. But there were a couple parables that weren't meant for the masses. They were meant for the couple of troublemakers. They were, they were meant for the religious leaders that resisted them. So there were a couple of rare parables that they, the religious leaders actually understood. And this was one of them. Because this parable wasn't for Peter, John, and James. This parable wasn't for, for the people gathered outside. This parable was aimed directly at the religious leaders. Remember, Jesus, the Savior, the Messiah, the Redeemer, the good guy, is also Jesus, the one who's going to cause the fall of many. Not just the rise, but the fall. Well, who do you imagine he's causing to rise? I imagine he's causing those that came to him with a humble heart, those that came to him and said, we need you. They, he lifted them up. Jesus never left anybody in the mud. He never left anybody lying on the road. He, he lifted them up. He healed them physically. He healed them spiritually. He healed them emotionally. He healed them all the way. And yet he was also appointed for the fall of many. Simeon told Mary that even your own soul will be pierced. 
that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. Isn't that what the Bible, what the, the scripture says that this word of God does? It, it pierces into our heart and it divides between soul and spirit and it judges the thoughts and intentions of our heart. I'm going to suggest to you tonight that because Jesus came, you have salvation. That's not a suggestion. That's a declaration. But this is what I'm going to suggest to you. Jesus came. You have salvation. But Jesus came also leaving you no option to stay neutral. You have no option to be neutral about it. You have no option to hear the word and walk away and not be different. Either you will hear it and it changes you. Either you'll read it and it changes you. Or you read it and you're further hardened. There's no neutral. Guys, you made the mistake of coming to church tonight. You can't leave the same as you came. We used to sing that song, you won't leave here like you came in Jesus' name. You know, and that, that was that, that, that was always good, and it is good. But you don't have the option of leaving the same. The word of God is meant to do something in your heart, and it says in the scripture, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. When you hear the voice of God, you're either going to get softer or you're going to get harder, but you won't stay neutral. So when we met Jesus, when we met God come in the flesh, we no longer could say, I think this is what God looks like. Maybe God looks like this. We knew what he looked like, and we had to choose whether we were going to accept that or reject that. And the truth of the matter is, you all had to come to that point at some point in your life. You met Jesus, and you had to choose, will I accept him or will I reject him? One of the greatest things you can do when you're sharing the gospel with someone is bring it back to Jesus. People will try to change the subject, make it about church issues, make it about hypocrites, make it about, make it about something somebody did 500 years ago. But that's not the point, is it? The point is, what about Jesus? He's the point. Because ultimately, that's what this is all about. Do I accept or reject Jesus? Jesus tells a parable in Mark 12, and it's not a nice one. He says, in verse 1, he began to speak to them in parables. And he says, a man planted a vineyard, and he put a wall around it, and he dug a vat under the wine press, and he built a tower. He rented it out to vine growers, and he went on a journey. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce from the vineyard of the vine growers. They took him and they beat him and they sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent them another slave and they wounded him in the head and they treated him shamefully and he sent another. That one they killed and so with many others, beating some and killing others. Who do you think he's talking about here? Who are these guys that he keeps sending? The prophets. And they keep getting beat up, sent away, and killed. So finally, it says he has one more to send. A beloved son. He sent him last of all of them, saying, they will respect my son. Now, can you imagine what everybody who's hearing this is thinking? Why is this guy, why does he keep sending servants. Don't you see? After the way they treated the first, after the way they treated the second, quit sending your guys. Quit doing this. I'm going to tell you this is evidence to me of a great, merciful, and loving God. Chance after chance after chance. He just kept sending them. I know it doesn't sound fair if you're the prophet. 
(laughs) But the reward is great, isn't it? I wouldn't like to be Hosea, who's forced to marry a woman that's got a reputation for being the woman that basically slept with everybody in town and done it for money and done it for all these other reasons. God says, I want you to marry her and I want you to treat her like she's just, like she's, like she's never done anything because that's the way I feel about my people. I take them. I don't care what they've done. I cleanse them. I wash them and I make them new again. Hosea marries this woman and sure enough, she goes back to her old ways, cheats on him and doesn't even try to hide it. She's very public about it. God says, take her back. She does it again and again, and God keeps saying to Hosea, keep taking her back. Now, that's great and all, because we see in that, in that lesson that, that God's showing us, this is what I'm doing for my people. You keep turning away from me and going to other gods and going to other ways and going to idols, and I keep taking you back. But how would you have liked to have been Hosea who has to live out that little object lesson? And everybody, everybody treats you like you're a fool. But that's how much God loved his people. He kept sending the servants, kept sending them to tell them. And they kept beating them and killing them and sending them away. Finally, he says, I'll send my son. They'll respect him. But the vine growers said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. Think about this. The vine grower has a lot more to risk with his son. This is it. This is the guy. This is the legacy. This is the continuance of his empire. This is his most prized possession. This is his own son who's going to carry on everything. Everything lives and dies with him. But he sends him. They say, let's kill him. His inheritance will be ours. They took him and they killed him and they threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers and he will give the vineyard to others. Now, I want you to know that remember, at this point, the parable is not being explained past what they're hearing. So the Pharisees are hearing the story and they have an answer. This is what you should do because remember the Pharisees, the religious leaders, not just the Pharisees, but the religious leaders of the time, they're very big on justice. They're very big on punishment. They're very big on if you take an eye, you're going to get an eye taken from you. So their sense of justice is rising up. These guys, if anything, when they're hearing this story going, well, of course, the vineyard owner is going to go and wipe them out. Like all of a sudden, they're, they're filled with this, what they think is righteous indignation. It's the same way that David felt when David had a man killed because David cheated on his wife. David cheated on this man's wife. and Sorry, David had an affair with this man's wife. And so David had a man killed and he thought he got away with it. Then the prophet came to him and told a story of of a rich man stealing a poor man's sheep and having it slaughtered. And David said, show me who that guy is. I'll have him killed. I'll have him punished. I'll take care of him. And the prophet says to him, you're the guy. And all of a sudden, David realized it was him. The same thing's happening to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders of the time. They're hearing this story and they're angry. They're saying, I know what we'd do. We'd come, we'd come and make them pay. We'd make them pay for every life they took, but we'd make them pay double for taking the life of that son. Then Jesus says, have you not read this scripture? 
the stone which the builders rejected. This became the chief cornerstone. This came from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to seize him, yet they feared the people. And this is the moment, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. And so they left him and went away. The scripture tells us all the other parables were hidden from them. But this one, they knew. We know the moment they knew it because the moment they realized it, they, they walked away. The moment they realized that they got out of there. Their own self-righteous indignation was turned against them because Jesus told them the story and all of a sudden it dawned on them as he quoted the Old Testament scripture. All of a sudden it hit them very clearly right between the eyes. You're the ones that kept killing my servants and you're the ones that planned to kill me. See, they already had a plan to kill Jesus. They had already made the plan. The Bible tells us they did it after Lazarus was risen from the dead and they had proof beyond all proof that Jesus was the Messiah. You may not know but according to the Jews at the time and through history, one of the last signs the Messiah was the Messiah was he'd raise a man who'd been dead for more than three days. It was proven to them beyond all doubt he's the guy. But their hearts were so hardened they couldn't receive it. And so they said from that moment on, we're going to kill him and we're going to kill Lazarus too. So suddenly they hear this parable and they go, it's us. And they get even more angry. I don't know any believer that's ever looked at the scripture and says, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, why, that's me. Nobody's ever looked at that and said, I identify with them. No, there, there are villains in the story. We, we love to say, ha those jerks, they'll get what's coming to them. But these were people too. They were people. They were humans of a similar nature to ours. And though you're born again, thank God, and you're of a new nature, there is an old way of thinking that crops up every now and then, which says, I have a lot to lose. And the moment that God reveals something to me about something that needs to change or, or something he wants to do in my life, if it conflicts with the life I've built, if it conflicts with the power I've, I've, I've uh, assembled to myself, if it, if it conflicts with the way I want to live my life, I reject it. It says over and over in Scripture, Jesus said it, says it in, 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 throughout the epistles, that, that God opposes the proud, and here's the good news, but he gives grace to the humble. I want you to know grace is available to you tonight. Grace is God, his empowering to do what you couldn't do, his favor towards you, even though you don't deserve it. It is God doing beyond what we could do. It's God's strength for our weaknesses. It's his life for our death, and his grace is sufficient for us. But in order to receive the grace of God, the Bible says you must humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and he will exalt you in the right time. In order for God to build what he wants to build in our lives, sometimes things got to get torn down first. That's not a bad thing. You want to build a nice house on a lot that you bought, but there's an old shack on that lot. Sometimes tearing down that old shack's about more exciting than building the new house. That's fun. But we got these old shacks in the lots of our hearts sometimes. And in order for God to build what he wants to build in you, 
we have to come to the point that Nicodemus came to, where he comes to Jesus and he says, what can I do to enter the kingdom of God? And Jesus says, you have to become born again. You have to become like a child, like a baby again. Now you're all sitting here going, well, good news, I've already been born again. Absolutely. But what's he really saying to Nicodemus? Here's a man who has a reputation. Here's a man who's, who's renowned. Here's a man who's got some weight behind his name. And what Jesus is saying to him is, Nicodemus, you're going to have to start out like a baby like everybody else. Nicodemus, I'm, I'm afraid to tell you, when you enter the kingdom of God, you don't come in with all your degrees. You don't come in with your titles. You come in just like everybody else, a baby born into the kingdom. Our life is about saying, Lord, I want everything you have for me. And so I'm willing to lay down everything I thought made me important so that I can pick up what you've given me. I'll lay down my coat so that I can put on yours. I'll lay down my name so that you can give me your name. Because the difference between Jesus being the fall of you and the rise of you is whether or not you're willing to lay down what you thought what you thought was so important about you, what you thought made you spe- what you thought made you powerful, what you thought made you better than anybody else. The proud will be humbled, but the humble will be exalted. Jesus was the fall of those that thought they were too good to need him anymore. But he was the rise of those who came with humility and said, I need you more than ever. We all look in here and we're all Christians, so we say, I've already made that decision. Well, thank God, I'm ha- I-, I believe that. But it's a decision I have to continually make. I have to continually say, I need you. And guys, I got stuff at stake. Do you realize that there may be a point in my life where I open the Bible, and there's been points in my life where I open the Bible and I go, boy, I've read this wrong for years. That's bad enough. You know what the problem is? How, you know, when I look at it and go, I've read it wrong. I've preached it wrong. You know, you're faced with the awkward situation of if I preach this different now, people are going to go, so what you said before. I, my father was part of a denomination that was very big where he was from. He was a young preacher that they put a lot of stock behind in, down there in Arkansas. And, and he had a free ride, full scholarship lined up to go to their top Bible school, top seminary in the whole state of Texas. They said he's going to be the next Billy Graham. This is our guy. He came to the point where he encountered the Holy Spirit in a way that he hadn't before. And he came to believe that Jesus Christ was the same yesterday, today, and forever. That the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts is the same Holy Spirit that it is today. And he realized the way, I, the way I'm preaching, the way I've been taught doesn't quite line up with all of this. And thank God they're not all wrong. There's, there's valuable things I've learned. I mean, they preach salvation better than most. But I got to go deeper with this. I, I've got to submit to God. But he knew if he was going to do that, he'd give up his scholarship. He'd give up his ordination. And it was right in the middle of the Vietnam War. If you were an ordained minister, you were very unlikely to be drafted because they, you were deemed an essential service. They wanted to keep you like a doctor. They wanted to keep you a stateside. 
But the minute you gave that up, the, he was a young man. He was a prime candidate to be drafted. He went from least likely to be drafted to most likely to be drafted. He gave up his full scholarship. He gave up his, 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 his pulpit that they had, they had been letting him have, you know, letting him preach and, and, and promoting him. And he gave it all up because he said this. If I can't stay true to what the word of God says, I don't want to preach at all. We're all going to come to these moments in our life where we have to say, what Jesus is leading me to, what he's showing us, what he's revealing to us is going to sometimes be inconvenient for me. It's going to sometimes come in conflict with the world I've built because his kingdom is so much better. His kingdom comes in conflict with all the other kingdoms and all the other kingdoms have to bow to his kingdom, including the little kingdoms I've built. And when I read that Jesus is going to be the fall of many and the rise of many, I got to tell you, I want him to be the rise of me. And it's not proud, to, it's not arrogant to say that. I want to rise with Jesus. I want, I, want, I want to be exalted by God. In order to be exalted by God, I got to humble myself. I got to come to him like a baby. I've got to come to him like a child. I've got to say, if I want to be lifted up, I got to humble myself under the mighty hand of God and he'll raise me up at the right time. Whatever you thought made you important. Whatever you thought made you better than anyone else, lay it down at the feet of Jesus. Because what he's looking for is a group of people. And I'm not talking about worldly humility. The world tells you to be humble is to say, I'm nothing, I'm a worm, I'll never do anything for God. Because why would he want to use somebody like me? That's not humility, that's self-pity. And it's just as self-focused and self-centered as the person who thinks they're God's gift to the world. The truth of the matter is, God wants to use you. God wants to exalt his people. We are nothing without him, but you're not without him. Christ-like humility says this, I am nothing without him, but through him all things are possible. Christ-like humility says, if I, hadn't, if I didn't have Jesus, I, 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 there would be nothing in my life worth anything, but I have Jesus, and through him I am more than a conqueror. Christ-like humility doesn't stand back and say, oh, God can't use me to do anything because why would he use someone like me? Christ-like humility says, it's not by my works. It's not by my deeds. It's not my, by my ability, my education, whatever I brought to the table. It's by the grace of God and the power of God that he chooses to use someone like me. But his power will be shown through me and God will be glorified. So a humble person sees an opportunity for God to be glorified and they run to it because they know that Christ in them is the hope of glory. I want you to stand before the king today and recognize that Jesus showed us what God looked like. And God doesn't look like what we want him to look like. He's better than that. He's not like what we've created in our minds. He doesn't look like a stronger version of us. He's better. And when we look at Jesus, we're forced to decide, do I go all in or do I go half in or do I run the other way? The truth is, Jesus never really allows us to go half in. But when we say, Lord, I want you and I want everything you have, that little baby that grew up to be this, the, 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 the redeemer of Israel, of course, he was always the redeemer, but he grew up to show the world what the father looked like. That little baby will be the rise of the humble and it'll be the fall of the proud. 
Don't think that we're any different than those Pharisees and Sadducees and religious leaders. We're prone to the same things they were prone to. We're prone to get angry when we're made uncomfortable by the word of God. But be like the tax collector who says, I'm uncomfortable, but I know that you came to my house for a reason. So Lord, whatever I've stolen, I'll give back four times. I'm happy to follow you. What God's looking for is people that would just come to him and say, I need you. Lay down what you brought to the table and pick up what he brought to the table. Jesus was appointed for your rise. Don't let it be for your fall. The stone that the builders rejected, we've got to either build our whole house on it or we're going to trip on it. Let's build our foundation on Jesus Christ. Let's make him the center again. Let's make him the point. Let's make him the reason. Let's make him the object of everything we do, the reason we do it, and the power we do it through. Don't let the word of God be a stumbling block to you. Don't let Jesus be a stumbling block to you. I'll be honest. There are some things in red letters that make me uncomfortable, but I recognize he is good, and he is faithful, and he loves me with a love that no one has ever known So I'm going to follow him even when it makes me uncomfortable. Even when it puts me in a position where I think, wow, people are going to think I'm not as hot as I think I am. That's all right. I'd rather have his kingdom than any other kingdom. Amen. Stand up with me. Let's pray.